In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witness. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. Everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. We're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Welcome back to the Ansons podcast. Bienvenidos a la podcasta de Ansons. Muy bien, Sam. Wow, mira vos. Um, uh, todos. <laughs> yes. No mas español. Hi, I'm Sam. And I introduced myself. Already. Already. And it is just after Christmas, I think. Or just before. Hard to say when we throw these things into the future from the past. Just yes. where they will land. It is near Christmas, probably. Mm-hmm. And that is significant to today's conversation because... Remember when we were talking about human nature? I do. Among other things, human nature felt like the continent, and we were exploring states and valleys of that continent. I very much like this metaphor. Yeah. Uh, Yes. We wanted to revisit that conversation because, you know, what we had done so far was explain, you have a worldview, you have a way of seeing the world, And it influences the decisions you make and how you interpret your life. And Mm -hmm. then we said, here are some of the dominant stories going on about who people are and what they're for. And then we jumped into one dimension of the image of God. But we wanted to give a few more pieces that were more practical about our humanity. Mm. And Which is what everybody's trying to do all the time, right? Just give practical things about being a human being. <laughs> <To> say more. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. It's true. It's, you know, Seth Godin's brilliant expression of marketing comes down to people like us do things like this. Right. Right. So people like us, you have to define your we, your humanity, and then you show or you provide to those people the implication. Do things like this. Do things like this. And let's go back to the image of God. We did a kind of died to the wool, read the text in context for some of the original implications of this passage. This is where Christmas is going to come in. So uh, there are a lot of ways to read the Bible. Two dominant approaches. You can talk about a synchronic approach and a diachronic approach. And... Our theology students out there, looking at you, Jesse, will go, oh, so God. So Disney. <laughs> Good. Now we've had um, three languages on the podcast. Ah, hi. Four, if you count the language of academia. We are, we're going to get some Latin today. Mm. Five. Let's try to keep it to five, shall we? Personal best. <laughs> Synchronic and diachronic. And here's what they are. Synchronic is you look at the text in its context. You don't let the meaning develop as it has over time. And this is like a way that I really like reading 
the Bible is start synchronic and then go diachronic. So we did a synchronic reading of the image of God. We went, all right, just this text, when it was produced for this people, what did it mean? And we were like, oh, well, they were surrounded by kings who claimed to be the image of God, who set up idols of themselves that were an affirmation of divine authority. Right. And so we kind of came up with like, oh, well, we are that. We have the right to rule and we affirm God's right to rule. Mm -hmm. Diachronic is the passage of time. Like how has this developed over time? What meanings have been pulled out of here? Because the biblical authors end up meaning more than they meant to mean. Right? Remember that from Tremper? Yep. And so remember yesterday, we're talking about uh, incarnation and time travel. We were. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We we talk about a lot of stuff. um, We were. I like to think that it's all that deep, but it's not. So if if you go to a diachronic reading of the image of God, um, Jesus has to be central in your reading of the image of God. And so... You get these crazy right. things. You get these crazy things when you start reading into like um, the significance of the incarnation where especially, you know, you roll in the Catholic direction and claim will be made like Adam is made in the image of God, which means he's made in the image of Christ, of a Christus Victor model. And like, you're like, wait, but Jesus comes after. and Yeah, but he's without time and it was... Yes. Plans made before the foundations of the world. Can we just say that when we begin to do that, that model of Jesus was always sacrificed for you from before the world was made, I be, it feels a bit like a theological cliff that I'm going to fall off of. It begins to feel like a humanity was set up, like we were always meant to fall. That, that, that's where my, that's the cliff I start falling off of, of free will and sin and all of those sorts of things, which isn't where we're going today, but that's where I begin. It begins to sort of do this like dramatic music in the, the movie that is my life. So yes. And here's one way maybe out of that, because I'm familiar with that cliff. Here's what is intriguing. This is actually what we were talking about yesterday. The... Incarnation, God entering creation in order to reconcile everything in himself so he could take everything in was a new moment that changed the nature of reality. And so we go, there was a reality before God became incarnate. It's gone forever. So when we look into the Old Testament, we're not looking at a pre-incarnate world. We're looking at a reality inside of which God has become incarnate. This is where, you know, I just feel like really the limits of my understanding. And for me, it doesn't feel like a cliff anymore. It feels like, you know, pressing out into the vast reaches of space and hitting a point where I'm like, what is next? If you want a mind bender of a book, which I recommend with a grain of salt, Space, Time, and Incarnation, Thomas Torrance, what he's thinking through is, wow. You have a new moment in, the, in, in cosmic history that sent a shockwave in every direction in time. Right. Um, crazy. We can unpack that. Um, but for the purposes of this podcast and the few directions we want to go, one of the things that happens when you move out of looking just at the Old Testament as it, as it was written to its original audience and look at Jesus, 
you get this core dimension of humanity as desiring beings. When we did a podcast with Michael Cusick and he was talking about the erotic life force in people, part of where that comes from is this idea of people start to grapple with, well, how do we read our humanity in terms of Jesus? And it goes like, well, who are we in terms of Jesus? We are the beloved who are sought and transformed by him. And so how this ends up getting summarized is like agape and eros love of like Jesus's descent is love descending. We are love ascending, like this reaching towards each other. We are not primarily thinking beings. We are in our essence desiring beings because who we are in relationship to Jesus is this epicenter of desire reaching out for God. Is that Larry Crabb? Who is a, I mean, that's probably lots of people have said that piece of human beings are inherently desiring beings rather than, where does that come from? Yes, that's uh, Larry Crabb. If they get it from anywhere, they probably get it from Pope Benedict. And here comes the Latin and his very long thing, Deus Caritas Est, hmm. God is love. And then sort of the modern voices of this Christopher West, Fill These Hearts, a book we recommended in Anselm's volume two. But there's this, there is a long tradition in Christianity of understanding, like, I love putting it this way, of like human beings are erotic beings. And if we just think of erotic as like debased sensuality. Which is where probably most people just went. But what if we were to upgrade that and go, you're an erotic being because you are driven by desire and reaching out uh, literally for God. And then that expresses itself in all these other ways, not just our creativity, but our ability to like imagine a future and reach into that future. Mm. Yeah. It's a concept that I'm not unfamiliar with and therefore I'm not having a, like a mind blown moment with that idea that we are desiring beings. It feels very true. It feels very uh, rooted in the body, honestly. And we've, we've touched on this in the past that the heresy of Gnosticism and of rejecting the body, of rejecting all of the things like that your your mind, your nose, your mouth, your fingertips can sense and engage with in the ways that you can bring all of those into relationship with God, the ways that Padre will now walk around the forest and it's like put his hand on a tree and feel literally more grounded. Uh, it's a practice we've started. So the background of my phone is my daughter smelling a ponderosa because they smell like butterscotch. They do. It's And how many people know that? It's right. like... Not that many. Or if you do, you forget and yeah. you smell one every once in a while. But that piece of like... I go back to the marketing world is aware that you are a desiring being. That's... Can we... All right. We had a conversation. Man, obviously everything that happens that ends up getting distilled here comes out of conversations that we were having so maybe i don't need to constantly introduce we were talking the other day oh we were talking assume we talk we talked about this because we work together nine to five monday to friday but you know the history of marketing where there there's a distinct like world war ii before after and pre-1944 how marketing mostly worked in the united states was uh rational appeal and it was like Hey, you know, like a very, here's a picture of a wrench and here, here's all the facts about it. Here's why it's good. And then assuming that people would come and read through the facts and go, that's a good wrench. I'll buy it. 
Everything felt a little bit like popular mechanics. Popular mechanics. Then post-World War II, where certain people get involved. Certain people. What kind of people get involved, Blade? Good question. Sigmund Freud's nephew. <laughs> that feels very specific and probably conspiratorial. It is not. Oh, okay. Sigmund Freud has a nephew who is really fascinated in the power of the unconscious. He ends up being a spy in World War II, where he uses the fact that human beings are driven by impulses outside of their consciousness to kind of do his spy thing. Yeah, so pause. That alone should speak volumes of humanity. If you understand a few things about how people work, you have the qualifications of working in intelligence in wartime. Yeah. Like, it doesn't take much to separate this person. I mean, another affirmation of this, the con artist on whom the movie Catch Me If You Can is based, Yeah, he has this quote where he goes, everyone is hungry for something. All you have to do is find it. And again, there's that, like, that desire at the epicenter of your being, which people know they can tap into. Well, let's go back to the spy. So fast forward, war ends. And he needs a job. What ends up happening is he ends up coming to the United States and he works in the emerging discipline of marketing where they go in uh, his big, like sort of the groundbreaking campaign is tobacco. They go, tobacco is seen as being like masculine, but therefore being very unfeminine. We're, we're losing half of the potential smoking market. What can we do? And what he knows is that you can tie desires together with objects called like making an anchor. And he goes, what we're going to do is we're going to tie cigarettes with this emerging movement feminism. We will sponsor feminist parades and we will plant women in the parade to be marching, smoking a cigarette. We will buy ads in newspapers that are in quotes, feminist ads. But all they were doing was repackaging cigarettes in the language of female empowerment. And they were hijacking like a legitimate desire for like to help a, women who really were oppressed in many ways and then they were taking it to sell cigarettes to the masses fast forward 80 years and you can't find a thing that's not anchored in a movement or emotion or a desire right so the only way for me to not want to buy things is to not actually look at Patagonia's website <laughs> Because, That's what I was gonna say. right, where I'm like, oh, the real secret here to like satisfaction is to be careful with my desire factory <laughs> and go, because if I go in Patagonia, uh, yes, they will have a photo of a jacket and it will say it has 800 fill down and the down is good for this reason. Mm. And it will have like, it will have a supporting rationale. But it'll appeal. have a photo. It'll have a freaking photo. And the photo isn't just the jacket on a table. It's the jacket on a guy who's fly fishing in a snowy river in the Rocky Mountains. And I want a life like that. And having a Patagonia jacket gets tied in my mind. And here's the thing. You listening think you know what the message is and you're able to get away from it in a marketing ad like that. You may go, ah, ha, ha. I know that that jacket doesn't make me happy or drop me in a river in the mountains of Colorado. But the truth is you don't know that it doesn't hold happiness. That's why you keep looking yes. at it. So oh, take man. this back to desiring beings directed towards God. Right. What we're looking for in this episode is what are a few things, where do we locate the epicenter of our being? And then how does that sort of, 
help us live better? Um, or how does that actually like rescue us out of the story of the world into the story of God? And go, one of them is when we read being made in the image of God through Jesus, we see that we are essentially desiring beings reaching out of ourselves and to go, oh, uh, when that is true, it actually really makes you key into your desire and, and ask yourself the questions of how do I become someone who desires more? Because a healthy heart is a heart deeply driven by desire, principally for like everything that's available in God. And that includes the things that God loves where you find him. Desiring being. We're going to hit a couple more. And you mentioned it in, you know, Gnosticism and like, where do we locate our essence? I got a text from someone after the first episode, great, soulful, thinking young dude who is like, oh, maybe you'll talk about uh, dichotomy versus trichotomy. What that refers to is like, are we body and spirit or are we body, soul and spirit? Like, what are the pieces that together make a person? How much was Paul the apostle translating Hebrew concepts into Greek concepts and what happened as he did that, as I think I would answer that question. Um, this concept of like soul, where is our essence? The Hebrew word soul is this word nefesh. I'm going to bracket a bunch of information. Here's seminary for you in five minutes. Seminary in five minutes is nefesh does not refer to an immaterial existence. Nefesh refers to the sum total of your physical existence. So Anybody else already lost? <laughs> but if you were to be like, you know, hey, do you think animals have souls? Souls are the part of you that when you hit with a hard object, they sort of look a little ghostly and they line up nicely with the physical body, but they're the part of you that goes to heaven. Right, the ghost in the machine part yeah. of you. Yes. Okay, great. So um, an animal, a good animal could have a soul, not the dog that bit me, but the <laughs> dog that I had. Um, and, and here's like the thing is, the ancient Hebrews do have an idea of an immaterial existence, they don't use the word soul, and they don't actually think that your essence is primarily immaterial. And the, the massive significance of this is going to be clear in like three minutes. So when soul gets used, uh, here's a pro tip for doing word studies. You know, find a verse where a, verse is com where a word is compelling to you. And or then, confusing. Yeah, and then you find, go, okay, well, what's that word? And then you look at a concordance. All of, the one, all of them. Right. So, you know. Then you find where the word was first used. Find where it's first used. Find, and then find, you know, you've done this with Tove, where like, find how else it gets translated and go, oh my gosh. And, and it will flesh out like, you know, how Tove in Exodus ends up getting translated as beautiful. Uh, when Moses' mother, it's like he saw that Moses was a beautiful child. Mm. Um, but the word is good. And so it's like, wow, what does that do to the way we think of good? So we'll just go nefesh, 754 uses in the Bible, but it's not always translated as soul. Mm. Sometimes it's translated as me. Hmm. Sometimes it's translated as my body. Sometimes it's translated as uh, life, heart, themselves, himself. Good Lord. Um, See so why people have a hard time with this. What it's trying to grasp is like, um, Isaiah 58, 11, 
the Lord will satisfy your soul, your nefesh in scorched places, giving strength to your bones. Um, and uh, Numbers 11, people who are also thirsty saying our nefeshes are languishing. Psalm 69, the waters have threatened my life. But the word is nefesh. So what it is, the word actually means throat. And it's like most, what does that word mean? This means throat. It means throat. Not soul. Right. Um, uh, it would be uh, a long uh, journey through word concept land. What you have to think of is upon what is your physical existence dependent? And it's like, <laughs> I like just how much you had to buffer that sentence with pauses. Like, um, okay. It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, like, gosh, ooh, well, this. The classic one. As the deer pants for streams of water with its throat, so my soul, my throat, pants for you, O oh God. But That is the classic one. It's a beautiful poetic image because it's the deer's throat is thirsty for this, but my whole being. The word for this is like a metonymy or a synecdoche for you. Englishers out there where you go, you use a part of a thing. To represent yes. the whole thing. So like if I'm like, you know. A deer is not a throat. Yes. And if I'm Thad and King and Lord of the Rings and I'm like, how many spears from blah, blah, blah. Really? You don't know the, the reference there? <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but I'm not actually concerned like with how many spears you brought. Literal spears. Yeah. Right? Most of us don't have to think about the fact that the spears represent something in that moment. It, exactly. You're like, oh. But we talk about a throat and we're like, what? It's like, but it's a stand-in for like, what what nourishes you comes into your nefesh. Your breath comes in and out of your throat. And so it becomes this stand-in for your whole physical existence. Here's why this matters. When we realize our embodiedness is actually part of the epicenter of our existence, of course it affects the way you treat your body. Of course it affects the way that you think of the physical world in general and what you hope for and what you hope for in the coming kingdom. Dad wrote about this in All Things New, but many Christians think that our future hope is to be, to our spirits to be taken away into a spiritual environment right? instead of the restoration of a world that looks a lot like this one and is actually physical, right? Uh, but has Eden restored, Genesis again. Which I think is interesting. It's the thing that the secular world is clinging to right now like the body the nature this the the power the soul there's like this new sort of pantheism animism thing going on with nature and the body though there is no god there is no reigning directing power the the secularists are like but there is so like they're clinging to the body and clinging to nature like a drowning man clinging to a piece of wood. And that should also be helpful data for us to go like, if you strip away some things, what do we still cling to as human beings? What are we still innately aware it has value? And I go, what are they aware of? What are they, why are they so desperately clinging to that when you remove the deeper anchor of God? Oh, yes. Here's one to toss out there is to go, the secular world's obsession with the physical as being important, what it contributes is, hey, 
if the physical matters and the physical is deeply tied in with the ethical, how you eat would matter, whether or not you exercise would matter. And what they're missing is that there is a spiritual dimension and there is a spiritual part of human beings. They're like fabric where if you look at the underside of your jeans, what you mostly see is white because jeans are made of white and blue thread. And to go, let's just in this metaphor go like, I'm actually not sure how effective this metaphor is. The white is the soul? Let's say the white is the physical and the blue threads are the spiritual. But the picture we're just trying to give here is that like, they're t- they intersect and it's really hard to divide them. And so materialism and the sort of Sam Harris popular philosophy movement is, listen, all there is is physical. But what it doesn't answer is, why does energy flow from higher concentration to lesser? Like, why have that rule instead of the other rule? Where did any of this come from? Like, what is filling and sustaining the very laws of nature And you have like the spirit Mm. in that. I also would throw out the caution that to the religious who go, wow, that is coming on way too strong for the physical and that tried to reject that, you can reject that into heresy. You you, literal heresy to push so far against it and to hate it, to condemn the body, to imagine that spiritual world of heaven where body doesn't matter and we're all spirit is incorrect doctrine. So just be careful with your reaction to the secular world's attachments to the physical. Here's a crazy takeaway here that I was thinking of making its own episode, but I'm gonna sneak it in here. Body image issues, this will absolutely revolutionize body image. Uh, because you know the body image movement in a positive sense wants to go there are many good ways of being embodied. Like, it would be weird for loving grandmothers to have the body of a 18-year-old Olympian. You would lose something essential about a grandmother. We have to go way, way, way back to the root, which is to go, if the physical is part of the epicenter of our being, uh, one aspect of the physical is that the physical is a unity of being, and the enemy hates that. If you want to win, you actually have to reject the enemy's hatred of God at the outset. And then you can go into the fascinating thing that humans will look like what they are. And this is obviously corrupted because we live after the fall. We live in a world with death. And yet something essential is still there where I go, my three-year-old daughter having the body of a three-year-old little girl is absolutely key to who she is and what she reveals about God. An academic, having the body of an academic is not incidental to that. And you just go, this unity of being is a key part of human experience. And what what we want to do is introduce this crazy division of be like, we want to be, I don't know, office workers who have the bodies of pro tennis players. But Wendell Berry, I mean, he writes about this extensively where he's like, our bodies have just become shipping containers that carry our immaterial capacities to work. So it's just the box you put your mind in to get your mind to work and then to get your mind to the gym. And you like, you know, you want to groom it and make it look a certain way. 
but something is lost at the outset when we reject living in a unity of being. And the only way out of it is just to go, God, you are wonderful. The universe you have made is wonderful. And I want to press into having a body that is like a key part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. I can see why it could be a whole podcast in itself because that is profound in simplicity and complex in the way it works itself out. Well, and let's just think like, you know, a mom, like just think of like a classic uh, American mother and there, there's, a, there's a huge range and yet uh, all of them in their bodies will be revealing the unique way of doing mother. And no one would, like, very few people would come to them. I said no, but I was like, the world is full of haters. And go, you're such a great mom, but you would be a better person if you had the body of a volleyball player. That would make you a better mom. And it's like, no, 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 something essential about God's nature and your portrayal of God's nature. It's real, like... In your body? Unless you happen to be a volleyball-playing mom, in which case there will be some other accusation coming right. against That's you. That's the right. There will be other accusation. And you can't... Yeah, that was the point I was trying to make is like there's always, there's always accusation of being embodied, of like your body is wrong. Your body is contrary to who you are. And if you just go like, no, I renounce hatred and accept the love of God. Right. And voila. <laughs> and then voila, you're welcome. Um, that'll be... Nine ninety nine for your dose of counseling right there. Um, yes. Take me back to the purpose of human beings as embodied and throat and desiring. Come weave those threads together into what we hoped was a closer landing point for the human nature series. Yes. Well, we are going to add one other part. Thread. One other thread. Okay. But I, but that is, this is a good moment to go, what are people? Are we principally physical or principally spiritual? How do we exist? And then what's the, what are the implications of that for how we ought to live? And, you know, we talk about if you understand yourself as a desiring being rather than a thinking being, oh my gosh, that can change your whole life of uh, read, fill these hearts and go, how do I actually desire more? And what is happening to my desires? And, and why are they attaching where they're attaching? Like, why do my desires all attach themselves to Toyota trucks and Cordura jackets? Where I'm like... Mm, for I, me, it's sailboats right now. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. And, and I'm back then like, are you satisfied in desiring sailboats? Honestly, like, is it, does it breed satisfaction? What does it breed in you? Yeah, right. I mean, sometimes it uh, is an end unto itself. We're just thinking about them provides the relief for a few moments that uh, the pressure of a day may have. Other times it can really be quite frustrating and feel like it's the verdict on whether life is going well or not, in which case I am failing miserably. So it really depends on what I'm going to it for. Doesn't it? For me, you know, just taking my Toyota truck thing here, I'm like, it's so complex and sometimes it just is enjoyable in the way that looking at art or things done well is enjoyable. But a lot of times it's like my desire for more satisfaction or my desire to feel like God is coming through for me more or my desire to enjoy the fruitfulness of my work. Like all of these things are tied in 
to my desire, which makes sense if I'm principally a desiring being. Now, nefesh, soul, the Shema, hero Israel, Lord is your God, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. My Shema, the uh, decorative thing I wear when I ride my motorcycle. Is that called the Shema? It's a Shema. Shema. Yeah. Shema. Well, Shema is the dragon. The dragon. <laughs> <laughs> you start to learn your words, things get a little tricky around here. I mean, just, but like, that's a really interesting place to look for. What are the key pieces to understand about human Smog beings? Smog has stolen it? No, that you have a heart and that you have a soul ah. and that you have a strength. Like There's a muchness about you. In there, I'm grabbing soul to go. It's really important, desiring. It's really important to understand like our physicalness, that we exist in a unity of being that reveals the glory of God. And kind of in this interesting thing, like catastrophes to our physical being let us talk about what's a good way for people to live. And this goes back to our Dr. James podcast. And it's like, wow, if our, in our embodiment, we're revealing something about God. If our embodiment is just doing terribly, that's actually a spiritual issue. And it lets us look at what people are for and to go, maybe people really aren't for sitting at desks for nine hours a day. Really, maybe they're not. Maybe your desire to get into the mountains is actually a fundamentally spiritual need. More to be explored there. But let's hit the last piece and then me. So the last piece is, what about the immaterial part of people? What are some ways to think about that? If your essence isn't necessarily immaterial, if your essence is this tied togetherness of your physical and spiritual self, the word for this is the ruach. You ever heard that at a worship gathering? Um... I'm trying to think of the last worship gathering I went to, <laughs> and I'm personally drawing a bit of a blank, but I do think that when I was at yesterday, we, we were just rock. It was like, we were rock, rocking out. We were <laughs> hey. That was awesome. I honestly haven't been to a worship gathering. <laughs> In, wait, no, ever. That's it. Okay. That's the end of that sentence. Well, I love that. <laughs> You didn't, weren't expecting that from me. That's why you like it, because it feels disruptive. Uh, I just, going back into desiring beings, what I love right now is like, wow, why did I go to a lot? And you're like, no, nothing in my desire is driving me there. Or I'm like, the presence of God is going to be there. I am going. How does it work? And man, lots of disappointment and lots of frustration with Mm. It could be unbacked with how much the presence of God seemed to not be in those things. Was this in high school? Because I was trying to beat the Halo on Legendary as quickly as I possibly could for the 10th time. I'm really thinking about like kind of college and also the last couple few years. Okay, so same answer then. <laughs> um, <laughs> ruach. I don't know. There are certain words that I experience in Christian culture get discovered and circulated like rhema of like, there's the logos, the word of God, but then there's the rhema the spoken word of God, and what does this tell us about relating to God? Yeah, Ruach um, is the spirit. Ruach is the spirit. over the waters. The spirit over the waters. Um, Which if I was, I mean, it's funny, I said I don't anything about it, and I say that. Um, I thought it'd be a great piece for like a Christian fantasy thing. You're like, you just got to have like this embodied thing. Yeah. Take the spirit and make it embodied. Have it still have that same name. It sounds very kind of shark-like. The Ruach. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. I, I'll tell you how I want to make a fantasy story out of all of these sort of Old Testament concepts. 
But then here's, then I realized that what I actually have is just a different version of the Old Testament. <laughs> and I'm like, the cherubim, the threshold guardians of the presence of God. How awesome is that? Yeah, I mean, right. You just want to explore the world more. I do. I do. But Ruach, why is this important? Um, I think to preserve that there is a part of you that is immaterial and it has implications for how we live and we're going to jump there fast. So Ruach, spirit, it's also the word for wind. It's also the word for breath. It gets used to mean a bunch of different things. Um, and again, synchronic reading. So ignore the passage of time and just look at the original audience. We have a doctrine of the Trinity that came after Pentecost. Uh, but before that, they were like, there is this part of God, which is God's spirit, which is both the part of God that like animates creation. And it's something that like certain denominations like to emphasize the fact that the spirit of God spoke through the prophets. You know what I've heard less emphasize is that the spirit of God is also the thing that falls on the judges before they do something crazy. And so it's like, what is characteristic Old Testament Ruach activity? Prophecy and killing people to donkey's jawbone. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to pick that one. Um, both things, both happen when the spirit of God fills, when the when God's ruach fills a person. Um, but people also are described as having a ruach. Um, in like a, and in the immaterial part of you, like the mind and wishes and it, like intuitions, that whole body of things where you go like, yes, um, our hardcore materialist moment wants to go, but even your mind is material and go, oh, sure. Yeah, I have a, I have a physical expression of my mind, but I have, I, there is an immaterial part of me, which is given by God and God can feel and is like God's power sustaining creation, including me. Okay. So why does that matter? Why does it matter to have a nefesh and a ruach? And why I think it matters is because we are all looking for our essence, like where is the center of me and, and how would I live, live out of it? What am I for? Young guys looking for their callings. What am I for? Or just me. And, you know, my frustration of like, I love chopping wood, but I also love going into art galleries. And I'm like, do I want to become a rancher or an artist? Like, what am I for? I, I'm so frustrated. I invite you to consider exploring the concept of Ruach further. If you're not that kind of person, you can consider taking my word for it that our Ruach is actually something that deeply connects us like with God's spirit, not in a pantheistic way, but in a way of what do we have to look at to find like the center, the thing that really unites our being? Um, Pretty fun. Uh, It is actually in God's vision of you. But oh, Ephesians 1. Surprising landing place of like, what is it that actually gives a person self? It's being a self in relation with God. And so that, you know, that sense of like, I hate my job. I don't know what I'm for. And to be like, well, maybe you need to try different jobs and be like, maybe you do. But what you ultimately need is to restore the deep connection with God. It's part of the lesson of having a Ruach. And there's this crazy thing 
in the reality of Christianity of your dependency on God increases your autonomy. Okay, this is a concept that is going to be fairly disruptive because we live in a day and age where the individual, we live in a culture, we live in the West where the individual is just held up like crazy. So that you would throw out there, our dependence on God would actually increase our autonomy is such a uh, contradiction that it sort of makes us sort of, makes me go, um... That's nice, Blaine. That sounds very nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have no idea what the heck that means. Well, what it means is, you know, if you're Descartes, you're like, how do I have to find myself? I have to get alone with my thoughts. If you're Wordsworth, oh, how how am I going to find myself? I got to get alone with me. Lord Byron, how am I going to get away? Going to get away with me. Alexander Hamilton, how how am I going to find myself? I just need to get by myself and get in my own head and go, wow, what if they were all wrong? And what if the ways that they thought they were finding themselves was actually like some very practical ways that they were experiencing God. They just didn't know it. And to go, Mm. um, I really need to find myself go, okay, where do you find God? Because yes, maybe like Wordsworth, you need to get into the mountains. You need to find the places that you loved. But maybe you need to get around people that really love God. Um, Mm -hmm. Or maybe you need to acknowledge that the physical is deeply spiritual. And so that to connect with God, you need to get into the gym or eat a delicious meal with other people. But the core insight here is like, if you want to really understand yourself and have like a deep inner strength, we are actually going to have to like really, 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 link ourselves to God and live a life that cultivates deep connection because the more separate we are, the less we are, period. The less we're selves, the less we're anything. The more connected we are, the more we exist in relationship with God, the more of ourself that we are, the more we actually live. (laughs) 